Good morning, friends. Hey, we are about two minutes early, but uh, with permission and forgiveness, I'm going to dive right in because we are going to drink from a fire hose this morning. And I want to make sure that you've got as much time as possible to, uh, to soak it all up. In fact, if I mute this right here. Plug it in when you need it. We'll just use it right when we need it. Sounds good. So for those of you who don't know, uh, my name is Matt Popovitz, and uh, I'm the pastor of Our Savior New York in New York City, and uh, I just want to thank you for bringing me here this weekend. I got uh, a chance to uh, spend uh, a couple days with the heart and soul of this congregation, which is the women of this congregation, right? Yeah. At your ladies' retreat, um, they gave me a name tag, but I didn't need it because I stuck out like a dude at a woman's retreat. But you treated me well. It was fun to, uh, to, uh, to chat with you and to talk about rest and Sabbath and distraction and those things. Um, but this morning, we're actually going to talk about worship. You can see the title of what we're going to do this morning on the screen. Uh, I've titled it Reflections on Worship Evangelism Being Distinctly Lutheran and Loving Our Neighbors. Uh, if you have a Bible, you'll want it, or if you have access to one on one of your electronic devices, you'll need it, because we're going to jump around to a bunch of different places. We're going to move really fast, because like I said, we have a ton of ground to cover. Uh, and I'm excited to talk about this with you, because um, uh, you have such a rich and uh, vibrant liturgical tradition here at St. John. Uh, it's been a joy for me to be a part of um, uh, we, we have a different worship style, uh, although similar in many ways, but different um, at uh, Our Savior New York. Um, but it's been really wonderful uh, for me to worship with you uh, yesterday and this morning. Um, and there's so much of what I'm going to talk about this morning that you already do so, so well um, that, uh, that brings joy to my pastor heart. You know, pastors have hearts like the Grinch. At least this one does. <laughs> It's small, but then it grows when you see God's people being God's people in beautiful ways. Um, But uh, you need to know some important things about me before I I kick into some teaching, and that is that I have other vocations. I have other callings. I'm I'm called to love Lisa right there, who is my high school sweetheart. We met when we were 14, started dating when we were 15. As much as you can date when your parents won't let you talk on the phone, and all you can do is stand at each other's locker and pass notes. (laughs) Uh, but then we got married, and we had Ava Elise, who was 11, going on 32. And then we have Jack Matthew, who, as I told the ladies at the women's retreat, is the Nazi of sleep. He hates sleeping. He doesn't do it. He's anti-sleep. But we love him anyway. Um, I'm the pastor of Our Savior New York. Two parishes, uh, hopefully, by the grace of God, soon to be three parishes in New York City. Uh, This parish that you see on the right is in the heart of Queens, a beautiful, intensely diverse blue-collar neighborhood in New York. Uh, These are the front doors of our parish in Midtown Manhattan, where we minister to young professionals, artists, creatives, journalists, uh, people who work in finance. So two very different parishes living out the same values uh, in an incredible city. Um, to, to quote the uh, musical Hamilton, which no one can get tickets to, the greatest city in the world, <laughs> at least in my humble opinion. I realize I'm in Chicago, which has the best pizza in a bread bowl you can possibly imagine. <laughs> also, I have to do a little bit of a commercial. Uh, late last year, I was able to, to publish a, a short little book um, that's been helpful to some, uh, entitled Tough Call, a little book on making big decisions. It's about approaching life's crossroads and big decision points through a Christian lens. Uh, but it does so in a way that's easily shareable with people who may not be as, um, as engaged in their Christian worldview as maybe you are. Uh, so it kind of crosses some of those boundaries and serves as an entry point into not just um, decision-making, which everybody uh, has to wrestle with on a daily basis, um, but also serves as an entry point into the Christian worldview and how people of faith approach big and scary decisions. Uh, let me start with this question. We're going to talk about worship, and I want you to shout out your answers. Here's the question I have. Who is worship for? Who is corporate worship for? You tell me. Who is it for? For us? Okay. Person sitting next to Person sitting next to you. Okay. For your neighbor as well. Anyone have any different answers? Praise. Praise to whom? Oh, yes. Yes. Praise to God. Kind of an essential piece in this, right? 
We we call it the divine service. There is service happening in two directions, right? There is a service that is happening uh, to us from God. He is giving us his gifts. He's bringing us to life with his word. He's sustaining us in the sacrament. He's making people members of his family through holy baptism. God is doing what God tends to do, which is serve us, asking nothing in return. That's what worship is about. It's, It's for the people who are his people. Worship is for the believer. That probably won't surprise this crowd. But worship is for the believer. Uh, The service that happens in the divine service is for those that are sons and daughters of Jesus. And we miss the mark. We miss the mark when we ask the question about worship and we assume it's mostly about, say, style. When we say it's a question of whether or not we have a liturgical traditional tradition or a more contemporary approach to worship, we're... We're missing the point when we, when we think of worship in terms of style. Worship is primarily God's service to us through his gifts. First and foremost, it is for his people. And I would argue that the best question we should ask about worship is not style, but whether or not our worship is evangelistic. Not whether or not we have the right form, although form matters, it matters a great deal. Because form is connected to your doctrine, Right? Doctrine and praxis go hand in hand. So I don't want to dismiss form whatsoever. But I would argue in so many conversations that are had about worship, the question is what kind of worship do you do? I would argue that for faithful Christians, the question is this. Understanding that worship is primarily for God's people, it's for us, it still should, must, has to have an evangelistic nature to it. I'm going to talk about how we get that wrong in a lot of ways but how we might live in that tension and get it right. Worship is evangelism. I would define evangelistic worship like this, and just pardon some of my horrible memes, okay? Evangelistic worship is this. This is what I'm going to posit to you over the next two hours or so, however long we have. (laughs) Evangelistic worship is worship that is thoroughly Christian in content and forms. Please don't miss that. Thoroughly Christian in content and forms, yet welcomes and equips the non-Christian to take part. Okay? It's thoroughly Christian in content and forms, which here at St. John you know so well, yet welcomes and equips the non-Christian to take part. And I've noticed that being done pretty well too. Um, What do we mean when we say that worship is thoroughly Christian in content and form? What do we mean when we say that? You tell me. It's based in Scripture. It's based in Scripture, right? Um, The liturgy tells the story over and over in different ways of Scripture, doesn't it? It It's constantly telling the story of God's God's work towards us in Jesus Christ, right? What else? Reverence. Reverence, absolutely. The proper posture, the proclamation of Christ, yeah? What else? The Lord speaks and we repeat what he says. That's I love that. The Lord speaks, we respond. We respond, yeah. Well, that's from the beginning of the Lutheran book of worship. Yes, it is. And our sidebar. That's right. There's some great words, I believe, from, um, from Nagel today in the, worship, uh, in the order of worship, which is a great example of what I'm talking about in terms of equipping, right? What else? we say worship is thoroughly Christian in content and form, what are we talking about? The Eucharist, absolutely. Um, uh, there's, there's something that, that Lutherans, Christians talk about, um, known as like the essential ordo, the essential order, the essential elements. And we would say they are scripture, the creeds, the Lord's prayer, confession, absolution, the preaching of the word, the Eucharist. If you get rid of these things, an argument can be made that you have ceased to have Christian worship. You may have a Christian event, but you get rid of these things, you cease to have Christian worship because these are the true marks of what, when Christians gather since the beginning of Christianity, they do these things. They do these things. We are unfaithful when we see worship and evangelism as an either-or. I would argue to you that um, that high church is being unfaithful when it refuses to translate 
what we are doing to others. And that low church gets it wrong when it redefines its worship and creates something different. Are you tracking with me on those two, those two roads? I think high church is, is unfaithful when it refuses to translate what it's doing. And low church is unfaithful when in an effort to translate, it completely recreates and it rejects the essential order and it creates a third space. Uh, in your Bible, turn to Psalm 105. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2. 105th Psalm. Verses 1 and 2. I'm going to have it on the screen, but I want you to get to your Bible first so you don't cheat and just look at the screen. 105th Psalm, verses 1 and 2. Let me, let me read this for us. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Pause right there. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. What is being described by the psalmist in that phrase? What is being described? Invocation, in a more general sense, he's talking about prayer, worship. This is a description of, this is, this is a call to worship, right? Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. This is about worship. Make known his deeds among whom? Among the peoples. So my act of worship, though for us, is also an act of making him known among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Who are we, to whom are we telling? To ourselves? Yes. But also to whom? The peoples. So you see here, Psalm 105, verses 1 and 2, you see this call to worship connected to this sharing of what we're doing in this peculiar, this peculiar act with the rest of the world. Worshiping and telling are to be held in tension Though it's for us, it is to be perceived by those who are not yet us. Worship and evangelism, hand in hand. Uh, Psalm 105 is a direct command to believers to engage in evangelistic worship. The psalmist challenges them to make them known, make the praises of God known among the nations. How? To sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of all his wonderful acts. Thus, believers are continually told to sing and praise God in front of the unbelieving nations. Our praise is to happen before the eyes of unbelievers. Uh, Jump with me to 1 Corinthians now. 1 Corinthians 14. We're going to start at verse 23. I will not have this on the screen. I'm going to run through verses 23 and 25 and just point some things out while you follow along in the text, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul is addressing the misuse of what in 1 Corinthians 14? The misuse of a particular gift. Yep, the Lutheran's favorite gift, speaking in tongues. I was not given that gift. I was given the spiritual gift of sarcasm when I was born. And I'm so good at it. So in 1 Corinthians 14, verse, verse 23... Verse 23, here's what's happening. Taking a look at the text, I'll I'll just kind of give some context. Paul is complaining that tongues will cause unbelievers to say that the Christians are out of their minds. Okay? Now, Now he's talking about something that's happening in first century worship. Christians are gathered for worship. Paul, as their pastor bishop, is kind of peering in and saying, all right, you want some pastoral critique here? Um, Verse 23, unbelievers see some of what's going on. They're going to think you're nuts. He insists that the worship service must be comprehensible to the outsider. He said, look, outsiders are going to look at what you do, and so it must make some, some sense to them. He says that if an unbeliever or an unlearned one enters and worship is being done in an edifying manner, verse 24, if it's being done in an edifying manner, what will happen? Verse 24, quote, he will be convinced by all that he's a sinner and will be judged by all. It's another way of saying he'll be convicted of his sins and come to faith. So if we do worship in an orderly way, in an edifying way, faithful, Christians still very peculiar, we're called to be weird, we're called to be weird, but in an orderly, edifying way, the unbeliever can see it, comprehend it, be convicted by her or his own sins, come to faith in Christ 
Verse 24, verse 25, the result, falling on his face, he will worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. So Paul is saying, watch how you worship so that the unbeliever can see, perceive, be convicted, participate, so that they might come to faith and call upon God. Now, jump with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, the launch of the early church. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 5. What we see in Acts chapter 2 is, 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 is a, the first Christian worship event. It's really what we're watching, the first Christian worship event. And peculiar things are happening. Again, I, you know, our, our, our liturgy as Lutherans is, to the outsider is, is wonderfully, awesomely, beautifully strange. And, it, and, it, and on purpose, on purpose, on purpose, on purpose. Um, and that's what's happening in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Um, verse 5. Verse 5. When the Spirit falls on those who are in the upper room, what happens in verse 5? What happens? Verse 5. What does it say? A crowd what? A crowd gathers. A crowd gathers. The crowd is hearing the disciples praising God. It says, quote, we hear them declaring the wonders of God. We understand but we're not a part of it. We don't believe what they believe, but we are hearing, we're overhearing them in their worship, declaring the wonders of God. Verse 11, also because this worship is in our own tongues. We can grasp it, understand it. It's in our own tongues, verse 11. Verse 12, the outsider is amazed and interested. It says, quote, amazed and perplexed. They asked, what does this mean? They're looking at it saying, I don't... They're praising their God. What, what is this? What, what is all this all about? This is kind of familiar, like it's in my language, but it's also not in my language. Uh, you clearly believe things. I don't. Um, what is happening here? Amazed and perplexed, they asked, what does this mean? Verse 12. Now skip 20 verses ahead, 25 verses ahead to verse 37. Verse 37. Later, they are convicted deeply. It says they were cut to the heart. This is, assumably, the same crowd of people that are taken in by the falling of the Holy Spirit upon the early disciples in the upper room. They're they're seeing what's happening. They're asking questions about it. Then Peter stands up later on to preach the first Christian sermon. The same people are in that crowd. Peter has now preached Christ to them. They've been drawn to them through their act of strange worship. Peter's now preached Christ to them. And the result of preaching Christ is the move of the Holy Spirit. And among those who are able to articulate the work of the Spirit, they say, what shall we do? They're cut to the heart. They're coming to faith. They're coming to belief. Now, what's all this mean? Psalm 105, 1 Corinthians, Acts chapter 2. I think there are three big takeaways we can have from this text, okay? These texts, rather. Number one, non-believers are expected to be present in Christian worship. In Acts chapter 2, it happens by word-of-mouth excitement. In 1 Corinthians 14, it's probably the result of personal invitation by Christian friends. Why is the outsider in 1 Corinthians 14 sitting in the worship service watching tongues and being weirded out because his friend who speaks in tongues and is a follower of Jesus invited him there? So so you see it happening in two ways. In Acts chapter 2, word of mouth excitement draws people to the worship event. In 1 Corinthians 14, a friend says to a friend, I've found this person named Jesus. You should come follow him with me. And they're sitting in that room. Non-believers are expected to be present in Christian worship. And if you assume that they're never there and you speak and act as if they're never there, I would assert to you that they will never be there. I think a great way to make unbelievers feel welcome in your worship service is to speak to them directly even if you assume they're not there. So, so though we have a, a, a very rigid order of service that, that we try to follow in our church, one of the things I, I try to make a point to do is to, in my sermons at particular points, address the unbeliever or the outsider. And when we were replanting the church in Queens, um, when I arrived there, there were about 10, 15 people in worship, and that's being generous. That's if you count me and my kids and, like, all three members of the Trinity. Like, (laughs) not many people there. 
and we, and we, and we, sh- we shut the church down and we, just, we, we, we closed the doors for a year and we just met for worship and it was a chance for us to recalibrate and refocus um, so that the church didn't die and we reopened the doors a year later. Um, but during that time, I would get up on Sunday morning and I, and I knew that we had purposely told people, don't invite anybody, we're not ready. Like, we don't know what we're doing. Um, we're, we're figuring all these things out. Please don't invite a friend. But I still, I got up there, and as a way of setting a value and demonstrating something, but then also trying to plant the seed for future unbelievers to be with us, I would say, during a moment of welcome or in my sermon, if you are here this morning and you do not have faith in Jesus Christ, I want you to know. I want you to know that you're welcome. I want you to know we're glad that you're here. If you're a guest with us this morning, and, and it would be weird for a moment because everybody would look around and be like, there's like 10 of us here, <laughs> and half of us are related. <laughs> but you know what it did to those 10 who were there? It said, once we open our doors, and if I bring my friend who feels like they're on the outside, my pastor is going to notice them, dignify them, and address them, and recognize them. This is a safe space for them. Even though everything we're going to do is going to be weird for them, my pastor is going to dignify them. Or in the sermon, uh, as an aside, saying, now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, one of your objections might be this. Let me address that very, very briefly. And let me, let me, let me restate your opposition in a way in which you would agree with. And let me, let me, let me assert to you an option that is, uh, that is focused on Christ for you to consider. Right? Um, if, but if we assume non-believers are never there, we never talk to them, we never address them, we never create a culture that assumes their presence, I would argue to you that they, they probably never will be. Okay? Um, but what you see in Psalm 105, Acts chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 14, non-believers are, are in and around the Christian worship. Second, non-believers must find the praise of Christians to be comprehensible. In Acts chapter 2, it happens by miraculous divine in- intervention that people can understand the various tongues. In 1 Corinthians 14, it happens by human design and effort. I think we are to live in attention of both those things. So often, in some of our, in some of our churches, uh, this is why I'm delighted to be with you guys, but, but so often in, in, in some churches, there is this assumption that, that Acts chapter 2, divine interpretation to the outsider is just going to happen. And so we don't have to intentionally explain, invite, welcome, put our arm around people literally and metaphorically in the act of worship to welcome them in. We say, well, God, look, the Holy Spirit will do his thing, and if they're meant to understand and believe, then they will. Which happens, for sure, Acts chapter 2. But there's also 1 Corinthians 14. How do we interpret? But not change, not get rid of, but how do we interpret so that someone who, who walks in and for whom it's completely incomprehensible, there is in some aspect something that's written, something that's said, uh, maybe even just a general feeling in the room that says, be next to me and, and allow me to make you comfortable as we do this particular thing and I would love you to become particular with me. Let's do this. That, that has to happen. That has to happen. But, we live, but it, ha- it, it will happen in divine ways, but it will also happen through intentionality very practical ways. Non-believers come to faith through comprehensible worship. Now, I know we don't do altar calls in the Lutheran church, and for good reason. We already have one. It's called the Lord's Supper. We come back to faith every time we come to that table. We have baptism. That's, where we, that, that's our altar call. We call everybody. Um, uh, we, we call anyone. Um, but our orderly worship to the unbaptized is an invitation to faith every single week. In 1 Corinthians 14, it happens during the service. In Acts 2, it's supplemented by meetings and follow-up. God wants the world to overhear us worshiping him. God directs his people not simply to worship, but to sing his praises before the nations. We're not simply to communicate the gospel to them, but to celebrate the gospel in front of them so that they might be drawn in. Let me show you a but I think is a great example of how this works, even though it has nothing to do with Christianity or worship. Remember the song, um, Don't Worry, Be Happy? Some of you are, who are like older than 30, you'll know that song. Like, do, 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 Don't worry. Do, 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 do. And who sang it? Bobby McFerrin. And, and, and sadly, he's, he's known for this little poppy a cappella song, like, there's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it. No, but he's actually like a musical genius. Right, and he gave a TED talk not too long ago about the power for people, the power in music uh, for people to 
very easily learn, comprehend, belong, and create with you. What do you think is happening in liturgy? Or can happen in liturgy, okay? Um, Let me show this video to you. I find this fascinating. See if I can get this to play. My sound. Hold on one second. Talk amongst yourselves. (laughs) Plug your ears. There we go. Now, what do you see happening in that video? What's happening there? You created an environment and invited them to participate <coughs> even without a particular cue from him once they got into the rhythm of that. Yeah. He was very intentional in establishing a handful of notes and establishing a relationship between him and the audience. And, and then he was able to take them on a journey where even after he, he jumped to new notes, they were able to follow. And then he was able to add flourish on top. And they were able to create something together, even though he'd only really intentionally in that moment taught them maybe three or four intervals. What does that teach us? What could that, might that teach us about worship? What do you think? What do you think? Or is it just a neat video? Yeah. We instinctively have a common language. Yeah. It goes beyond speaking. Right. We've got to give people credit that there is this common connection, in particular in music, that, we're, that, we, can, that we can share and we can leverage and we can bring people along. But it does sit, take some initial intentionality of saying, we're going to create something together. You may think that you're ill-equipped, but I'm going to give you a handful of essentials, and then you're going to be surprised at what you're able to do together as we work together as people to create a beautiful sound. What else might this say? Yeah. Interestingly enough, he did not explain anything. He didn't say a word, did he? No, he just did it. Yeah. It, it, like you said, he intentionally did some things at the beginning, but as it went on, he said nothing. He just moved, and everybody seemed to know what to do. Yeah, it was, it was amazing what could be communicated through posture, eye contact, 
uh, um, some, some movement of the hands and trust. Yeah. He encouraged them to be a part, to open up, to be a part of what was going on. Mm-hmm. He drew them in, which is extremely important, and they became identified with the whole situation and the way yeah, it, was, it was clearly understood that he was up there not to perform for you, but to draw you in to creating and doing something with him. That, that, that I think, is lost on a lot of pastors. That, that our task is to not be up here and then ex opera operato, just do this for you and make it work. What does liturgy mean? Participation? Work of who? The people. Lit ergos. It's the, it's the working of. This is the work of the people. In praise to God, receiving from God, but it is the work of the people. It's about equipping people to see, understand, and appropriately take part in the liturgy. Liturgy, letos, public, ergos, working. It is the public work we share in as we voice our faith. I don't know what all there is to learn from Bobby McFerrin about worship, but I think there's something there. Familiarity and openness to Christian worship is going to continue to decline. I feel this very strongly in my particular context in New York City, where the percentage of the population of the 8.35 million people who live there who identify as Christian is about 4% where the average attendance at a Christian church is 35 to 40 people. There was an article, I think it was in, I want to say it was in Washington Post. Uh, Ed Stetzer, who lives here in Wheaton, Illinois, he had tweeted it out and it said that uh, mainline Protestant decline, if it continues, they have 23 Easter's left. So familiarity with how we do worship and how we should do worship is going to continue to decline And skepticism of watered-down efforts to repackage worship is going to continue to rise. That's part of the tension I find myself in, in New York City. Uh, There is very little familiarity with the forms of Christian worship as familiarity with Christian culture decreases rapidly. But then New Yorkers, who are skeptical of everything, are in particular skeptical of Christians watering down what they believe in order to make it palatable to them. They feel as though you are, you are undermining their intelligence. They also value excellence, and they value tradition, and they value authenticity. And if you are part of a tradition, then you should exercise that tra- tradition. And if you have a tradition, you should do it well, because we're all professionals doing what we do really, really well here in New York City, so why aren't you doing it really, really well? And so you feel caught. I want to introduce you to one of my neighbors. It's a great example of the hurdles that I'm facing that are coming to a suburban area near you very soon. Um, this is a, a segment from a special put together by Tom Papa. He's a, uh, a well-known comedian. He lives about 15 blocks south of my church in Midtown Manhattan. And he is a great example of the people that I'm reaching and trying to serve in New York City. And uh, there's a segment on one of his recent specials called Going to Church where he describes taking his daughter to church on the lower, uh, on the lower west side, rather, of Manhattan. Um, and the experience that they had as a man who considers himself kind of, kind of detached from the Christian belief, but his wife is... Uh, uh, well, you'll see. You'll see. Um, I, I do want to give you a, a fair warning. There is some mild profanity in this. Right? But this is all for a learning context. We can all deal with that, right? That is not an, this is not an endorsement of everything he says. This is a learning exercise, all right? It's nothing horrible, like don't tweet, don't tweet about it. Like say, Pastor Matt just showed something horrible in church and I'm never, ever going to be the same. It's not that. <laughs> but again, we're just trying to understand our culture, but it's funny. So there's that. All right, let me cue this up really quickly, all right? Let me cue this up. You're all intrigued, like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Here we go. This is a couple minutes long, so just buckle in. This is it. This is it. We just die and that's it. Nothing more. Nothing more. Or do we get to go to someplace even greater? This is a great party. You want to keep the party going? Do it. Yeah. But if there is someplace magical and better than this, how about a text? How about an email? Nothing. 
Nobody said, we search all the time and nothing. My little girl want to go to church for the first time. And uh, we don't go to church. I believe, but I don't believe enough to ruin my Sundays. <laughs> I can't totally not believe because I was raised Catholic and I'm terrified all the time. If you were raised Catholic, you know what I mean? You can't shake it. You're just, no. My wife was raised Catholic. She's the boss completely not believe. She's like, the church is a patriarchal system. I'm like, yeah, I'm with you. But then on the side, I'm like, dear God, I'm sorry I live with this devil. I don't know how this heathen got in my bed. If we die at the same time, I'm totally cool with splitting up. Send her where you gotta send her, big guy. I'm coming with you. But my little girl wanted to go, and it makes sense, because the church is the coolest building in the neighborhood, isn't it? It's got spires and rainbow windows and bells ringing. She's like, I want to see the show that goes on in there. I was like, all right, let's go. Let's get dressed up and go to church. I'll take you. It felt right, like when I was a kid. So I put on a suit and tie. She dressed up like a little girl's version of a woman, which is hilarious. A little lipstick, you know. Everything's poopy, poopy dress, poopy side. Little heels this big, she can't even walk. It's like a billy goat on ice. <laughs> but she thinks she's hot. She's carrying her purse filled with chapstick and pennies. <laughs> and I feel great, too, because I'm walking with the cutest puppy on earth. Everybody that comes by, oh, she's so cute. And I milk it. I'm like, I know, we don't have time for this. We're on our way to church. We're filled with goodness. <laughs> Every Sunday. And we were having a great time. We were having a little date. She's yapping. We're holding hands. It's a great time. And she gets up the church steps. The doors open. She freezes. Starts digging into my hand. She's shaking like a leaf. She's looking up at the giant, bloody Catholic Jesus <laughs> hanging from the ceiling. And I realized we never told her the stories. <laughs> She's looking at me like, this is a haunted house. <laughs> We sit in the pew, it's all creaky and old, and old people are petting her. Hello, little girl. <laughs> Holding her purse like a roller coaster rail, just two eyes. <laughs> Terrified. And it, it is a haunted house. You look through her eyes, and the rainbow windows from the outside tell the story of how he died, so it's all being stepped on and stabbed, and big thing where they christen the babies. Daddy, what's that? That's where we dump babies underwater the first time of the year. <laughs> Then this old lady gets up and starts crossing the altar on the way to the organ. I was like, oh no, not the organ. This is not gonna go well. And to say she's old is a compliment. She'd been dead for years. It was like a wicked witch made out of beef jerky. She gets up to that organ. She reaches out her old lady talons. The veins are coming off like she's been attacked with silly string. She hits that organ. Boom, boom. All I hear next to me is, I wanna go! Uncontrollable, you're not allowed to laugh, but you're laughing, so now you're snorting. Let's get out of here! Then the headliner comes out, the priest comes down the aisle. I swear to you, he looked like Dracula. Long head, hair all greased back, and he's in his robe, so it doesn't even look like he's walking. He's floating down the aisle. They're doing the whole smoke show in front of him.
It is funny and sad all at the same time. As a leader, one of my jobs is to champion the presence of non-believers and to equip our people as we do our particular things to see things through their lens, to understand that our neighbors are more like Tom than they are like us. That they consider themselves perhaps nominally Christian, but they haven't taught their children the stories, as he puts it. Or that he believes he's closer to God sitting on the steps of the church where the birds are chirping than taking part in the machinations of a haunted house. There are increasingly more people in your neighborhood and in mine who would applaud along with him when he says that. And yet, God's expectation is that he would be here. And that we would not change what we do, but we would be loving to our neighbor as we do what we do. So how do we do that? I don't know. Let's figure all to find out. Let's pray. <clears throat> Just kidding. I've got some ideas. All right? <laughs> I've got some ideas. Uh, one of my goals is to foster empathy for the first-time guest. Some of you are, are new to St. John. And you know this. You know how hard it is to go to a new church for the first time. It's a miracle anyone goes to a church for the first time. Especially if you have kids. Like, it's it's such a hard thing to do. Even if you're, like, a lifelong Christian just moved to a new neighborhood and you're looking for a new church and you're intent on it, like, you really got to want it. You got to plan for it in advance. You got to look for the church. Then you got to, like, get the will to get up. On Sunday morning, that's after talking yourself into it. On Saturday night, you're like, oh, that's right. We're going to try and find a church. Like, we're going to have to get up. We're going to have to get breakfast. We're going to have the kids ready. And then we're not going to know anybody. And we're still going to go. It's a miracle anybody ever does it. Now, consider yourself not a Christian and willing to do it. You're probably there because you're in crisis and you feel like you have to. That's why. Because if you're not a Christian, there's really, it's like no... There's no reason for you to go through all the hurdles to get there, so it's usually crisis that drives you there. One of my jobs as a pastor is to to create empathy for the first-time guest. It is so hard to go to a church for the first time and to peer over their wall and look at the peculiar things that they do. And yet God commands that we create a church that, like the the ancient temple, has a temple court around it where people can get close enough and be comfortable enough to see it and smell it and experience it and ask questions about it and talk to the people who are going in and say, like, what's happening in here? Is this just like a big barbecue? Am I in Texas? What's happening? Like, there's sacrifices, there's meat, and, like, what's going on here? Oh, no, 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 we're worshiping our God. Like, we have to create that environment. Within worship, I think we should aim to do the following this is some of the things that we try to do. I'm not claiming that this is all, um, this is all right. I, I think this is all an attempt to be faithful. Here's what we try to do. Number one, we try to avoid spiritual jargon. Now, when I say avoid, I don't, uh, that's probably too strong of a word. We try to explain spiritual jargon. Um, we, we have an insider language as Christians, and it's beautiful and it's great, but your neighbor doesn't know what the word Kyrie means. And so there needs to be moments where those things are explained. There needs to be catechesis about liturgy. That has to happen. has to happen. There needs to be a bulletin that's printed up with interesting little quotes in the sides and and context that's given. If only there were a church that did that kind of thing. That has to happen. (laughs) People don't know what an offertory is. They look at that and don't even know how to pronounce it. All it means is the time for the offering. That's all it means, right? (laughs) but some explanation, or even in our preaching. Have you ever, when was the last time you heard somebody use the word sanctification outside of a church? (laughs) Do you think your neighbor knows what in the world that means? We are sanctified by Jesus. No idea what that means. Use the word. Use it. Preach it boldly. 
but double click on it and say we are made right, holy, recreated through the work of God. Now you've not only said the right thing, you've explained it and put your arm around your neighbor. That's what we have to do. Address the unbeliever. I talked about that earlier. Talk to them as if they are there, even if you don't think they're there. Explain rites and rituals. Rites and rituals that aren't explained soon become empty rites and rituals that no one knows why we do them. And empty rites and rituals and no one knows the why becomes points of bitterness that people cling to. And they say, see, see what's wrong with the church. We're doing all of this. And it takes so much effort and so much energy. And nobody knows why. It's probably just an effort to retain control from the man. Right? That's what happens. No. We have to explain it. We have to explain it. And there also must be a call to faith. Now, again, I'm not saying that as Lutherans we should have altar calls. I don't think so. I think for our, our baptism and our Lord's Supper is our altar calls enough. Here, here's what I think this looks like. Around the worship service, as we explain what we do, we assume that there are non-believers there. And when we talk about the Lord's Supper, we say to the non-believer, our desire, if you're here as a non-Christian, is that someday you would be able to take this meal with us. And so as we go into church, if you... If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not baptized into his family, you've not been instructed, and you're not a part of this community, we invite you to come forward with your arms crossed to receive a blessing. We want you to receive something. But I want you to know that my ultimate goal is for you at some point to understand that God is giving you Jesus and his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace. And so even if you don't come forward to receive the Lord's Supper later on today, ponder that invitation as you sit in our pews. Because I would hate for you to walk out of here with nothing. That's what it looks like. Or as you celebrate a baptism, you look at everyone else there and say, baptism is not just a call for this person or this family, it's a call to all who've not yet received it. There's an invitation to all to receive what this child is receiving because there's no difference between you and this child. You think there is, but in God's eyes there isn't. We are all helpless and unable and incapable and desperately in need of mercy and grace and God gives it to everybody. And if you or someone in your family needs to receive it, talk to me afterward. Now let's get wet. That's what it looks like, I think. That's what it looks like. There's call to faith. Here's another thing that we do at our church. Um, There is a lot of tension among skeptical New Yorkers about um, taking an offering about churches asking for money. And so we created what we call a a generosity liturgy that we say um, during the offertory every single week as a way of reminding ourselves why we give as Christians, but also as an explanation for what's happening in that moment to the outsider who is is scoffing internally at the, the collection of an offering. This is what we say every week as a church. I'll read it to you. Everything we have is a gift from God. All that we have and are belong to God, bought with the blood of Jesus. Lord, help us be a people who live lives of sacrificial generosity, that through our generosity, your love would be known. Keep us from the delusion of wealth and riches and remind us that our treasure is in Christ. Increase our generosity so that there are no needy persons among us. Grant us faithfulness in our stewardship of such a small thing as money that Christ may trust us with true riches. Above all, let us be generous because our Father is generous. And it is our joy to share his generous heart with the world. Reminds us why we do what we do and explains it to the outsider. Let me close just with a question. And I know you guys are living in this already so well. What steps might we take as a church body, capital C, to have our worship be distinctly Lutheran? yet evangelistic in posture and done in love for our neighbor. I'll give you an example. I'll close with this. Susan is a journalist with the Associated Press, and um, she attends regularly our, our, our worship service in Midtown Manhattan. And recently she said to me, Pastor, I really love what you're doing here. It's not all my thing, but I appreciate it, and I understand it. 
And she said it in a, sen- in a way that gave me the sense like she had gone to churches before and not really gotten what was going on. Now, we, we do standard weird Lutheran things. And I mean that in the best possible way. But she grasped it, which was good. Personally, uh, she's spiritually ambiguous. She rejects a good deal of what we teach. But she's neither deceived about what we teach nor deterred in it. She gets exactly who we are and what we believe, but is not turned off in how we exercise it because we've made it clear that she is welcome here. We want her here. We make it clear in our explanation and our invitation as we do our distinctly Lutheran things. She feels welcome to come, to see and to hear, to sit in the temple courts, to peer over our fence and to take part she said, Pastor, your seminars are wonderful. <laughs> I said, well, it's called a sermon, but uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. And friends, I think that's a win. I think it's a win for the kingdom. My encouragement to you is to keep living in that tension that you have embraced so beautifully and so well. Let me close this with a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the life of worship that you have given to us that we get to live out on Sundays, but but every day of the week. Father, we thank you that you give us this service where we, we receive from you relentlessly the gift of mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. We ask, Father, that you you would also continue to make our hearts empathetic towards the outsider that our hearts would feel the pain and the awkwardness of the first-time guest. And that though our, our forms and our content have, have been given to us by our brothers and sisters over time and must be embraced by us, Father, let our posture also be the same as our spiritual ancestors. Let our posture be the same as the Israelites in worship who were called to be a light to the nations as they did their peculiar thing. Let us create temple courts for the outsider to see and to overhear and to ask. Let us assume that you will work miraculously to help others understand, but let us also reflect personally about how we can intentionally bring their understanding along so that they might come to faith, ask questions, be welcomed, feel at home. Father, I thank you for the work to accomplish that that you are already doing here at St. John. And I pray that it would spread to our other churches, mine included, Lord. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.